Hello, outliers, edge pushers, and boundary breakers. I am Brooke Warner, and I'm here with the only person I'd want to unpack complex literary topics with, and that is my co-pilot, Grant Faulkner. Hey, Grant. Hey, Brooke. I am ready to push some edges today with you. <laughs> Let's do this. Yes. And, and we're going to do that by introducing people to Quentin Lee. He is truly an interesting character. He's written a book that he professes to be a love letter to his younger self based on himself. So it's a work of autofiction, and that is compelling. But the story is at times pretty disturbing, um, but it's also very lucid, you know, even though, you know, we're through the disturbing bits, I should say, uh, you can't help but like the protagonist because he's very thoughtful, he's very true to himself, and he is eccentrically unique. Uh, and so the book is called The Secret Diary of Edward Ng. And Edward's proclivities and passions and sometimes um, morally ambiguous choices kind of leave you wondering about lots of things, you know, about him, about your own life, you know, some of the things he's doing are sleeping with his cousin, Victor, for instance, experimenting with prostitution. Uh, and it's a coming of age narrative that's focused on two points of identity being Asian. Quentin is from Hong Kong, but lives in the States and or rather, I already said Quentin. In fact, I meant the character Edward. <laughs> um, Edward and Quentin are from Hong Kong and living in the States. Um, and then the other point of identity is being gay, which his family knows but doesn't approve of. And all of this is taking place in the 90s, well before being queer is normalized in the way that it is today, especially among kids, high school students in particular. Uh, so with that story laid out a bit, Grant, I wanted to home in on moral ambiguity as the topic today, uh, because I realized in fiction, this is probably one of my absolute favorite things. I really love it when authors present to you a character whose choices you have to measure against what you would do and where would you draw the line. So I thought it would be fun to explore this a bit and you know, tell me what you think about moral ambiguity and what novels you've read that explore this in an intentional way. Yeah, what, what a great theme and how apropos to our times, I think. I've been really thinking about moral ambiguity a lot of late because I think we, we need to revere it much more than we have been. Um, I feel like we're living in a very righteous and very judgmental world in a lot of ways, which means to me that it, it feels very unreceptive and narrow, you know, a world where people think they have the answers about the right way to live and kind of try to enforce those answers. But I read and write in a large part to nourish my sense of doubt, actually, and to, to live with characters who are in a state of contradiction, to feel the messiness of human life, and to be able to understand how goodness can live next to badness, or just how we are creatures of duality, so often different on the inside than we are on the exterior. And I recently read this quote from James Baldwin, who said, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions that have been hidden by the answers. And I think that's perfect because laying bare the questions is about entering into a world of moral ambiguity. You know, the answers, uh, when, when those answers are kind of cloaked in certainty, they sometimes don't lead us to good places. And I think uh, the answers are better found in, in the shadowy realms of nuance and doubt and questioning. And that's that's what where the best novels uh, reside. You know, I think uh, you asked about novels that focus on moral ambiguity, and I, I can't even pick one out. I think all of our best novels do that, you know, from Don Quixote to Anna Karenina to Moby Dick to Beloved to Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, you know, to so many others. They all start with moral ambiguity. 
Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm happy that you mentioned um, Anna Karenina because I'm rereading it right now and I'm only about 150 pages in. So that's like 20% of the novel. <laughs> yeah. But it's super wonderful to be back in the mind of Tolstoy because I think I read it about 25 years ago. Um you know, we touched upon this topic briefly earlier this year with Elka Joshi, who wrote The Henna Artist, um, because her protagonist was helping women have miscarriages as her side job, obviously another complex and fraught topic. And, you know, just recently, James, who is 11 now, asked me, what is an abortion? And when I explained it, I realized just how difficult it was to have any language to explain to a child how a fetus is different from a live baby and how limited I felt in explaining, like, sometimes a woman doesn't want to keep the baby and even calling it a baby felt heavy. <laughs> so, you know, we have all these topics that are central to the human experience and fiction really allows us to explore this in ways that I think I appreciate oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes more in fiction than in memoir. And I appreciate in the interview uh, how Quentin is going to speak to those lines, you know, like these things are based in real life, but they're not necessarily true. Like obviously you get to take so much creative license in fiction, which is very freeing. Um, and so in the case of Edward Ng, um, you know, I, it made me wonder, and you're, you asked Quentin this, you know, what would have happened if it had been written as a memoir? And I'm sure I would have liked it. But the fact is also that he enters into other characters' points of view, which actually gives you a much broader and more nuanced portrayal of Edward the character than could possibly have been happening in the limited single POV narrative. Um, so I, I know you've experienced this yourself, Grant, through your own writing and other novelists, you know, just talking about the range of possibilities available when writing in multiple points of view and, and how that helps to inform this topic of moral ambiguity. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting existential, you know, place for a story or a decision. I often think that every character, including ourselves, we're all unreliable narrators of a type or we're all unreliable you know, simply because our, our version of a story is limited to our point of view. So a novel that offers multiple points of view naturally broadens the story and more firmly introduces counterpoints and tensions of another views and desires. Um, I actually wrote most of my fiction with, with, with multiple points of view for that reason. I hadn't thought about this so much in terms of memoir, though, but I suppose that might be one reason to write an autofiction novel instead of a memoir, you know, to feel the story with a different expanse and perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because if it's autofiction, then you get to feel into what other people think about the experiences you've had. And I think a lot of people really value that exploration. And in the case of this book, you know, Edward embodies the or, or rather Quentin, the author embodies the judgments and the ranges of feelings and reactions that other people have toward his character, Edward, you know, and I think that's also really interesting. So, um, you know, another point of curiosity for me in reading Quentin's book had to do with centering experiences that are other in ways that I really liked, you know, he's explicitly centering queerness and centering his Asian and Asian American experience in a way that's calling into question I think why it's othered in the first place. So in this novel, understandably, Edward is the open-minded one, while many of the other characters are struggling in one way or another with his living outside the narrow box that everybody wants him to conform to. And so there's just this little snippet of conversation between Edward's cousin, Victor, and that's the one he's sleeping with, and a girl who's a friend of Victor's. And their exchange goes like this. So Victor says, do you think my cousin is cute? Referring to Edward. 
Um, he's okay, said Jennifer matter-of-factly. I guess he's kind of cute in a boyish way. He's gay. Oh, Jennifer took out two coffee mugs from the pantry. He's gay, but he's cool. I I have some gay friends too. They're all so sweet and intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, I don't know. I saw this passage, you know, as like Quentin nodding to sort of the absurdity of generalizations like these, you know, like he's sweet. Oh, but he's gay, but he's cool. Um, Mm -hmm. It kind of makes you think about the unconscious things people say, you know, and how when you're in these other boxes, it's kind of a constant onslaught every day of people making comments about you and, you know, how they think you are or what you are just because of this particular point of identity. Um, And so I just, I liked that he did such a good job of showing how Edward doesn't really get to escape his queerness or his Asian-ness, you know, not that one would expect he would, but he really just wants to be himself. And yet he's running the gauntlet every day. Yeah. I want to say, Brooke, that was a very good reading, by the way. (laughs) Um, So I just want to compliment that. I just really felt into the SoCal thing. I, I, I saw Jennifer and Victor down in UCLA doing their thing. Yeah, it it came through. I thought you captured the rhythms <laughs> of the dialogue really well. And I like that scene because it shows the you know the, the awareness and the empathy that books are so good at delivering. I mean, most people who live inside the white hetero cisgender identity operate from a limited perspective and a perspective where they don't realize the the microaggressions they're putting out there and um sometimes without any, you know, ill intent. Um but reading this interaction, you know, made me cringe on Edward's behalf, you know, but he has to absorb the interaction and move on without saying anything. And you mentioned earlier how this novel takes place in the nineties and it's getting hard to remember the nineties. Uh, but that was, you know, (laughs) before being gay was normalized in the way it is today. Um, you know, it's easy to forget what a pre, you know, Ellen and Will and Grace world, you know, was like, and, and, and a world where gay marriage was, was still just a relatively small movement. Yeah, that's so true. And um, I guess what I felt about reading Quentin's words had to do with the truism that people who've suffered in life are often those who carry with them the most empathy and compassion and capacity to, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, Quentin's own struggles or what I imagine them to have been, of course, inform his work. And that's the gift. Um, you know, and I haven't really read a story like this, maybe ever. Um, I felt like I was getting an inside look into Quentin's mind you know, and it did, of course, it's a novel, it reads very fictional, uh, especially because of the multiple points of view. But it also felt like an experience, and it is an experience inside the mind of a young gay Asian boy, you know, with all the pressures and expectations of a traditional Asian family to succeed, to go to the best schools, which are Cal and UCLA and Yale, you know, and also not to be gay. (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, how Edward handles all those pressures, which was kind of revolutionary because throughout, you know, he, as I said, he does it while insisting on being himself. It's best to insist on being yourself, no matter how hard that might be. With that said, I look forward to learning more from Quentin after this short break. Welcome back, everyone. We have Quentin Lee with us today. Quentin was born in Hong Kong, immigrated to Canada, and then to the U.S., where he attended the University of 
California at Berkeley and Yale University for his BA and MA in English. He also attended UCLA for his MFA in film production. His feature films and television works are available on streaming worldwide. Uh, and today we're talking with Quentin about his debut novel, The Secret Diary of Edward Ng. So welcome, Quentin. We're very happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. So yes, it's your debut novel. Uh, it's a sexual and intellectual coming-of-age story. It's a deeply intimate story, too, insofar as you really let us see the inner lives of your characters who have a lot of complicated feelings about their identities and their sexualities. Um, and Edward is your protagonist, and he's definitely the most comfortable in his queerness. But he's also seen by his peers as odd and eccentric, and he's judged for being gay. Um, and I know your PR materials say that the story is something of a love letter to your younger self. So I'd love for you to start by telling us a bit about what you hope to achieve with um, this protagonist, Edward. So actually, um, Secret Diary of Edward Ng is in my first novel. I've actually written like a bunch of novels as a teenager, oh. but nothing ever got published. And I was writing when I wasn't really good at writing English. So, because English is sort of my second language. And then eventually I went to Berkeley. Um, I was still writing. I think I wrote something at Berkeley to like a novel, but never got published. And finally, when I got to Yale and I was like incredibly bored in the dorm room. So I kind of wrote this book called uh, Secret Diary of Edwarding at Yale during that year as sort of like a fictional reimagination of my uh, last year at Berkeley. So they're little autobiographical bits that are true. For example, I did have this uncle and aunt that's not very supportive. And um, I also went to my graduation, my only graduation at Berkeley in drag. And because I was studying a lot of theories about like, you know, feminist theory and queer theory. So it's kind of makes sense. But a lot of things are also not, there's a lot of things that are also made up. So um, Edward is a combination of like what I was and also like what I would I imagine myself to be a badass kind of situation. Um, so, and, and I know that a lot of like people of color writer have always been put in this position of having to be the native informant, to be able to, to write about, you know, a memoir, something kind of real. And so, so the goal of writing this book was to kind of like use memory, but also use imagination at the same time. And to kind of like, you know, uh, reverse this sort of psychology of like, you know, the writer being the native native informant of his own culture and um, identity. Well, Quentin, in the, in the press release for your book, I noticed that your novel is referred to as a novella, and I am very interested in the novella as a form and in forms of, in, of brevity in general. So I was, I was curious if there was a conscious choice for it to be a novella, or is it just a novella? You know, did it just end up, it's linked, qualified as a novella. And, and, and can you talk about the choice to write a shorter novel? You know what? It's actually just ended up to, to qualify as a novella, and <laughs> I was intending it as more of a novel. But um, but it is, I guess, it's sort of in between because I think a novella is usually shorter. So in in my opinion, novella would be kind of like Virginia Woolf's um, A Room of One's Own. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a novella, and this is just a little bit longer than that. So I think that it's it can be both a novel and novella, and definitely the the qualification of being a novella was sort of like what people put onto it. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting and, and good to know. Um, Quentin, you know, I really enjoyed the book. Edward is such a complex character and he's a bit ahead of his time. Like he's very okay with being gay. And at one point he tells his cousin, uh, I told you I wanted to stop believing in conventional morality and prostitution is the only way to do this without harming other people. Um, and then he's also having a sexual relationship with his cousin, his male cousin. Um, there's a lot going on in the book around like moral ambiguity, but Edward is also ultimately so likable. So that's that's good that he's kind of based on you. <laughs> um, you. You must be likable too. And, you know, I was thinking like we're really rooting for him because he's telling us all these things like very forthrightly. Uh, he doesn't want to be boxed in. So I was curious, what kinds of moral questions were you grappling with in the book? And, um, you know, were, were any of those questions unique to the Asian American experience or were they meant to be more broadly applicable? I mean, Edward's philosophy of basically trying to become an artist and to free himself from conventional morality was definitely my philosophy. Although I never had a relationship with my cousin. I never had anything with my cousins and my cousin was totally straight. So, so again, like it's a combination of fictionalization, mm -hmm. but the realities that I did to so the, what, what, what I really did in college was that I did, I did experiment a lot sexually because I wanted to free myself from, you know, I felt like in order for me to become a writer, to think freely and to write freely, I really need to free myself from conventional morality. And I needed to make myself break out of it by experimenting with sexuality, such as, you know, prostitution. And I was also, I was also acted in the porn film once and answered like a little ad in the back of like, I think SF Weekly or the Bay Guardian or something like that. And, and I think I did that exactly at 19. And then I sort of never looked back. And then it's sort of like I wrote that into the novel as part of like Edward's journey. It's interesting because Brooke and I uh, often talk about this line between autofiction and and the choice to write something as a memoir uh, instead. And I, 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 you know, I think first and foremost, it's interesting to me that you're a director and a producer and you seem to draw in real life in your films. I watched the trailer for Gay Hollywood Dad, and I can imagine you took a lot of personal risk to tell that story. So I guess it all, this is all making me think that you could have written this book as a memoir. And so I'm wondering what inspired you to write it as a novel, as autofiction, and did you ever consider writing it as a memoir? Yeah, I mean, like again, like I, I did not want to write a memoir from the beginning because I did want to create a fictional character. But I think when I was writing my early novels, and they were mostly 100% fictional, and none of them ever got published. And so I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. And so when I started making films and like mostly experimental short films, I started using a lot more autobiographical elements and, and those films somehow became successful. And I thought, okay, well, when I was at Yale, I was, I didn't go to film school yet. And I just left Berkeley, but I started making these short films that were kind of like, um, kind of like crossed between like autobiography and fiction. And so I sort of like, when, so when I was writing The Secret Diary of Edward Ng, I just thought that, um, that would be something that I wanted to try to do. And I think that in the early parts of my works, I always explored this kind of like line between autobiography and fiction. And again, like I was very much influenced by Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. And you could say A Room of One's Own was a memoir, but it's kind of like more than memoir. And I was also very influenced by um, uh, The Portrait of a Young Man as an Artist um, by James Joyce. 
And again, like there was something really kind of deep and autobiographical about that piece. And he, I think, I think he actually showed his his early writings in that novel. So those were the elements that really inspired me to write, you know, a novel, but with some autobiographical elements, so that the audience have to guess what's real and what not. Interesting, Quentin. Um, you know, and obviously, partly this book is a work of queer fiction. Um, and looking at your films too, you're centering the experience of being gay. And I was curious about your motivations as an artist. Like, is it to mainstream the gay experience to make it more acceptable? Or do you think there's some other, well, I'm sure you've thought about it. Or what other vision might you have for your work that you could tell us about? Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was just like when I started making films, there were literally no images about queer Asians. So that sort of became how I wanted to create, you know, more literature about it, whether it is whether I was writing, you know, The Secret Diary of Edward Ng or, or doing my earlier films. But then as I progressed as an artist and I started creating more images or more images or more stories about queer Asians, I started to open up a little bit and and still I think that I I feel like I in a lot of my works I still have either queer or Asian American elements in it but it's not necessarily like I absolutely have to make a film about a queer Asian even though I just made my eighth feature and there's also a queer Asian character in it. <laughs> so I'm not sure I answer that question but um I wouldn't say that I want to mainstream the gay experience or the Asian American experience but I just wanted to present kind of my perspective of being queer and Asian to the world that I feel that could be relevant in a bigger context, you know, in a more meaningful context. And I still don't see my perspective or, or, or what, you know, we're, we're mainstream. So, so that's why I keep telling these stories. Well, you, you published with Troublemaker Press, which is a great name. Just wanted to note that. And and also that your publisher is Simon Tam, who's the founder of the legendary Asian-American rock band, The Slants. This seems like a very natural and cool collaboration, uh, but I was curious if you already had a connection to Simon. And, and then if you can tell us a little bit about the publishing journey and how this book came to land with Troublemaker Press. Yeah, the publishing journey actually started um, in 1999. Uh, actually, I graduated from Yale in 93. I already had that manuscript and I kept rewriting it. And I was submitting to publishers and and um, kept getting rejections. So finally, I started making films in 99 and just thought, you know what? I'm just tired of dealing with this publisher, kind of like publishing politics. And I know as a filmmaker, I can just put a film out. Why well, couldn't I put, a, put out a novel? So I basically self-published it back in 1999 with a different title called Dressed Like a Boy. And... It was with this uh, self-publishing company called Writers Club Press or something like that. But nothing ever happened to it. And finally, I just, you know, severed my relationship with that publisher. And then I met Simon on an occasion that I was working with him on um, a couple of other projects. And I actually read his book and I really was a fan. And I asked him, would you be interested in publishing this? And he said, sure. Then it sort of happened. 
I love it. In closing, Quentin, I I think what's brave about your work is that you're unapologetically exploring themes that are fraught by their very nature. And that's why I was moved by Edward's experience, in part because it was so fraught. Um, And I think this kind of work and these kinds of books are inspiring for younger people who might have similar experiences, you know, being an outsider in any number of ways. Um, And since you seem to have been a kid afflicted by other people's feelings about who you were supposed to be, I'm wondering what advice you have for younger people who maybe are at the mercy of other people's expectations um, or moral certitudes. I really feel like my one advice would be, if you want to be a filmmaker, you want to be a writer, just start writing. Pick up a camera pick up, you know, a laptop and just start writing and don't worry about what people want out there. Because I think I struggled for years trying to figure out what the market want. And whatever I produce, thinking about the market never kind of quite comes out. And I think that something like The Secret Diary of Edward Ings has been very genuine and, and it's doing okay. So that would be my one advice. Clear and simple. So thank you, Quentin. Uh, and, and good luck to you. I hope that you have more novels uh, published in the future. But for the time being, I also hope our listeners will go and look at some of your films because you're doing some really cool and progressive stuff. So congratulations to you. Thank you, Brooke and Grant. Really appreciate this opportunity to chat. Absolutely, Quentin. Likewise. We'll be right back with today's book trend. So Grant, this week's trend is something that we're revisiting. We're doing banned books again, uh, this time specifically. And the reason we're repeating it is because the ACLU just came out with a banned book club reading list. Uh, I'm a proud member of the ACLU, so I love it that they put together a book club reading list. And the reason I wanted to bring it up on the heels of Quentin's episode uh, is that what's notable is that many of them are books with LGBTQ themes. Five of the 10 uh, on the reading list, in fact, Heather Has Two Mommies, All Boys Aren't Blue, Gender Queer, Melissa, and Lawn Boy. So as I said, 50% of the books about gender and sexual identity. Um, and so I just wanted to name them and uh, so listeners can put them on their reading lists. Yeah, it speaks a lot to the current moment that we chose to have the book trend again be banned books. It's actually quite urgent that we push back. And one of the ways to do that is to buy and read the books on this list. And and what a great way to be an activist, to buy books. Right. And it feels important to note, too, that in 2021, the American Library Association recorded 729 book challenges, which wow. is sort of how books get on the banned book list. And that's compared to 156 challenges received the prior year. So we're not doing so well. Yeah, thanks for sharing those figures. Because while while book bans, you know, they're obviously very prominent in the news these days. I had no idea the figures were so disturbingly dramatic. So we're keeping this trend short because we want to provide a reminder of what's happening. A note that if you're looking for something to read, you can join the ACLU book club, and you can find the full list through their website aclu.org so be an activist and and read these books but do not ban us (laughs) we're right-minded we're a weekly podcast and we will be back next week as always please download us or follow us on your favorite podcasting platform and let's keep writing and reading books we'll see you next week